0: I got a lesson from the entrepreneurs that I kept talking to over and over, which was, hey, look, you're gonna be doing this 365 days a year. You're not gonna make any money anytime soon. So just make sure that what you're doing, you enjoy. Just, Just pursue that passion. And we hear it all the time. It's very trite, but there's a lot of truth to it. And you can find passion in really interesting things. Like we were doing customer email management, not exactly the most sexy thing in the world, but it was really fun to build those teams. So find the passion. The advice I got from the venture guys that I was working for, the partners, fix problems. Because when, you, when you're a startup, if you're fixing a real problem, I don't care how small you are, people will listen. Uh, and so passion, the problem, and then my third one is just, just keep hiring better than yourself.
1: Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private Equity Analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jiu-jitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Mark Ganey. Mark is the co-founder and chairman of Strava, the leading social platform for athletes. Mark grew up in Reno, Nevada, and was slated to run cross-country for Harvard. However, after being sidelined by an injury, he then got recruited to join the crew team, where he would meet his Strava co-founder, Michael Horvath. It would be many years before they would start Strava, and Mark's first job after graduating college was at the growth equity firm, T.A. Associates. While at T.A., Mark spent nearly five years talking with entrepreneurs and learning about their businesses. He wanted to be on the other side of the table. And so, Mark and Michael reconvened in the mid-90s and began brainstorming a business that would eventually become Kana Communications, an email management software company. Kana became wildly successful, and Mark left the company after four years. After several years of advisory-type work... Mark was itching to start something again and thought back to the idea he had of somehow recreating the team-like atmosphere he experienced on the Harvard crew team. He then reached back out to Michael Horvath, and they began creating what would become Strava. In this interview, we discuss Mark's time growing up in Reno, Nevada, his experience on the Harvard crew team, his time talking with entrepreneurs at TA, Kana Communications, and of course, Strava. And so, without further ado, my interview with Mark Ganey. Good. So let's start this off at the beginning here. Where did you grow up? Uh,
0: I grew up in Reno, Nevada. Yeah, grew up okay. in the high, high desert, uh, you know, about 5,000 feet up there against the Sierra Nevada. So it's actually a pretty great place to grow up as a kid.
1: Yeah. Did you play a lot of sports growing up?
0: Yeah, you just spend a lot of time outdoors when you grow up in a place like that. So I was uh, a big soccer player that was kind of what you did growing up. Uh, you know, they had a couple seasons and then uh, gosh, starting in first grade, you know, the PE every Wednesday afternoon in the winter was to take us up to the ski resort. So, you know, learn how to ski and uh, that was, that was big. That was kind of my winter thing. Um, and then ultimately, as I got older, I kind of moved into cross country and that's cross country and track was really my sports in high school. And and so forth so always moving uh always some kind of endurance thing always just kind of keeping the feet going which yeah was fun.
1: yeah that's great and what like was that active lifestyle something that was encouraged encouraged by your parents too while you're growing up
0: you know i i think it was yes uh it, i mean my dad's a physician my mom was was at home caring for three kids and it's not like either of them were were big huge sports folks themselves they kind of had busy lives but I think they just, you know, you got to keep the after-school programs going. And as long as they're moving, they're out of trouble. Uh, you know, that was probably the main thing. And then, yeah, yeah, I just had an affinity for it. I just, I love, um, love to compete and love games. And uh, yeah, I just kind of naturally fell into it.
1: Yeah. Plus you're in a great, it sounds like you're just in a great environment too, where it was appealing to be outside and do all those activities.
0: You know, it's true. People joke about Reno all the time. I used to get, uh, uh, particularly when I we went off to college because I was there on the East Coast there at Harvard. And, you know, people people live in Reno. I mean, you just got that all the time. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was fantastic because you have this, uh, you know, dry climate, 5,000 feet, uh, tons of trails. You know, Tahoe is literally 30 minutes away. So the summer, yeah. my, all my summer jobs were in Lake Tahoe. Uh, in the winter, you know, when I got old enough, I was a ski instructor at the local resort. So it's a, it's a pretty good life. People who figured it out, it's, uh, there are still days I wish I was back there.
1: But uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Life takes its other turns.
1: Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Would you say that you're like a natural or born entrepreneur? Like you were you the kid who was always starting lemonade stands or had a journal of business ideas when you were growing up?
0: Uh, no, well, I mean, I've got funny stories. There's definitely, there's definitely been sort of an entrepreneurial thread. Um, I don't know if it was naturally born or just like, stubborn persistence. But uh, I mean, as a kid, it wasn't like the um, I didn't have like the the lawn business and things. But uh, by the time I was in college, there was there was definitely that entrepreneurial bent. We had a great uh, I remember one season when I was injured and kind of looking for something to do. And a good friend of mine named Chris Moore, uh, we ended up putting together a concessions business where we figured out that if you were the main sports, like you know, the football and so forth, professional concessionaires came in there, but for all the non-mainstream stuff, right, you know, swimming and women's basketball and indoor track and field, there was nobody there to offer up some, you know, Cokes and hot dogs to people. So we went and just filled up the trunk of a car and would show up and it was great. You know, it turned out that, you know, it cost you nine cents a hot dog. You could sell it for two bucks and that was great spending money. So that, yeah. that was probably my first real dive into entrepreneurship. and like, I like this, I like the idea of yeah. really creating my own thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So maybe it was just like dormant inside of you until you found that right opportunity while you were at Harvard. Exactly,
0: Exactly. yeah. yeah and then, I, you know, as I started my professional career, I was fortunate to start to get introduced to a lot of entrepreneurs and that's really where I caught the bug.
1: Right, right, yeah. And I definitely wanna get into that into that later. Um, so you, you went to Harvard, was like hard work and getting good grades in school. Um, like something that I was like like in, really instilled in you like from your parents, would you say?
0: you know again, I got to give them a lot of credit. It was never anything that was like pushed or uh, talked about. Um, I was fortunate to have two parents who had been college educated themselves, and so they recognized the importance of it and I think there was an expectation, whether it was you know stated or not that hey, your job in this family is to go to school and to do as well as you can and kind of going back to that competitive streak, I, I will be the first to acknowledge I sort of treated school like one big game. Uh, how do you get the best grade? I can't mm-hmm. say that I remember a lot of the stuff that was taught to me. Uh, it's one of the great ironies in life. But, yeah. um, but uh, so it was part of it. Uh, you know, kind of a big fish, little pond, Reno High School, you know, again, just another great public school environment. And Yeah. If anybody asked me if I was going to Harvard, I would have said, no way. Uh, that was, that was a bit of a fluke. Um, so.
1: Okay. So you weren't like one of those kids that you might hear about who had their sights set on going to Harvard, like even before high school.
0: Oh no. Furthest thing from it. No. Yeah. I was, uh, I was looking at a handful of other colleges and then, um, actually the track and field coach, uh, sent me a very nice note. Um, handwritten note in the fall. This is, this is, guys, we're going back to the last century. I, mean, I got, in Chase, I'm really old here. So this is <laughs> this was 1985, 86. I get this handwritten note from the Harvard coaches inviting me to look at the school. They've, they've seen, so I'd had a very good, I was very fortunate. I was on an incredible team, Reno high school. We won the state championship, you know, three years in a row. My senior year I, I won the individual state championship. And so I just, I had a good streak going uh, I had some decent SAT scores and things like that. And so the, the university reached out to me and said, you know, would you ever consider it? And I remember at the time thinking, no, I'm not, that's that. Harvard's for brainiacs and nerds and I don't want to go there. And my dad was great. My dad was like, you don't have to go there, but you're going to owe him the decency of applying. Anybody sends you that kind of a note, like you owe it to them to at least send the application back and thank them. So that's what you're going to, that, that's the kind of expectation my parents has. like, you're gonna treat people right. And, uh, and I did. And one thing led to another and I got accepted and then that gave me a chance to go visit and it turned out that it was a pretty cool place. And so I only yeah. intended to go out there and run. Uh, and again, ironically, that changed as well because I ended up on the crew team, but yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was my entree to Harvard and East Coast and Boston.
1: Interesting, okay. So you initially got recruited to run at Harvard and then transition to crew. like how did that all transpire and like what was your reaction when you got contacted by the crew coaches
0: yeah so that that one a very long story short the the one downside that i had i've been pretty injury prone in fact it's been something that sort of plagued me my entire life i'm just a bit of a klutz i'm always breaking something and so i went out there uh with a handful of injuries that really kept me from competing and being on the cross country track season my freshman year and uh a long story short, a, a friend of mine who had joined the crew program said, you want to come down and, and check this out? Uh, and so I did just on a whim, just to see, not because I thought I was going to compete or be on the team, but just just because I was friends with this guy and I wanted to see what it was like. And I was sitting in the the tanks. So there's an indoor training uh, part of the facility there where you, they're called the tanks. And it's where you, you can practice your rowing indoors. Uh, and I happened to be sitting in there just checking it out and... and the varsity lightweight coach, a guy named Charlie, Butt, walked in and asked me what I was doing there. And I explained that I had a friend and every, you know, everything was fine, but he started asking me a bunch of questions. And I think he took a look, one kind of look at me chase and realized, well, I got this guy who's pretty tall, pretty thin, looks like he's got some big lungs. Uh, maybe I had to check him out. And so Charlie started talking to me and said, well, you have any interest in actually going out in a boat? And I said, sure. Yeah, I'll give it a try. And, uh, yeah, one thing led to another. I mean, I was hooked. I, I mean, that that crew program and that experience absolutely defined the next really three years of my life at Harvard. It, it's, it's I should have a degree that says crew because that's where I spent all my time was in that boathouse. Uh, it yeah. was just fantastic.
1: Yeah. So you never rowed before then?
0: No. No, I never <laughs> held nor in my life. There's not a lot of rowing in Reno, Nevada. So uh, yeah. no. and that's the... You know, at least back then, I think it's gotten much more competitive uh, nowadays. But back in the, again, this is the mid-80s, you know, early 90s, the coaches were pretty clever. You know, they, w- they would recruit from the other athletic programs. And then their thinking was, look, if we've got raw talent, we can teach them how to row. Uh, in fact, they don't have any bad habits. So, no, they brought us into the program and it was trial by fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I definitely put my oar into the back of a few rowers um, uh, unintentionally, you know, as I learned how to row, but uh, right, you, know, you pick it up quick, and it's it's a special sport. It's a unique sport because it's you spend a lot of hours, a lot of months training for a six-minute race, uh, and you learn that you're only as good as your teammates. Like it's it's all about it's it's perfection of teamwork right there. Because when you get it right, there's nothing better than what we call swing, which is just the movement of the boat, and when that boat is synchronized and all the rowers are in cadence correctly it's just a really powerful feeling it's it's there's nothing better
1: yeah yeah you really do have to be kind of in really in sync and it's kind of at least for me it's it seems like easier to to kind of wrap my head around like how everyone's kind of working together in that boat to keep the whole team in sync versus maybe like other sports like basketball or football maybe it's like a little less intuitive if that makes sense
0: that's right. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. no. And, and we spend a lot of time just doing our individual training, right? Like any sport you spend a lot of, we spend a lot of time on ergs or running or weightlifting or all this stuff, but yeah, you get into that boat and it's, there's a, it's a dance that you're doing with everybody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. And so what are the biggest takeaways or lessons learned from doing crew that you've been able to apply like to life and business?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, they're endless. Uh, I mean, it's why, it's why the business that Michael and I co-founded even exists. I mean, Strava is, in many ways, the reincarnation of the, of the boathouse. It's, it's what we missed as rowers. So, you know, the why comes from everything just being motivated and everything that comes from, from leading an active lifestyle. First off, it's, I have funny stories, Chase. Like, it was always ironic. My grades were at their best in the thick of the racing season which in some ways was counterintuitive. Like when you're, when you're most focused and most busy with everything else, my grades were good, which kind of taught me something. It's like that discipline and sort of what comes with just sort of having a set schedule. Uh, so simple things like that. We were just talking about teamwork and just sort of the, the power of like, it's not about having the eight best rowers in the world together. It's about having eight, actually nine, because you have a coxswain. It's having those nine people who get along well and who understand their respective roles. Um, you you learn little nuances. Like, you know, in a single boat, you might look at it and just say, oh, you've got these eight rowers plus the coxswain. They're all doing the same thing. But they're actually different roles, even in that boat. I I was in what we call the engine room. I was a four seat right in the middle. Basically, I could pull really hard, but I had a horrible technique. Whereas somebody who's in the stroke seat, they're the one who's setting the cadence. They're the ones right at the, the back of the boat next to the coxswain. And we're all following on that rower's rhythm, right. Or the, the people in the bow. So you just learn sort of everybody has their own unique specific role, but only together you can do something great, which when you apply it to business, it it happens over and over. Um, I could keep going. Yeah. It was a great setup for, for really kind of entering my professional life.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that your grades were better when you were at your busiest. That's another one of my podcast guests also said the same thing. And, uh, he said something along the lines of if you want to get something done, ask a busy person to do it. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's interesting. It forces you to prioritize and, you know, as you said, be, be disciplined, just get it done.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly.
1: Yeah. So what did you think you wanted to do for a career while you were at Harvard?
0: Uh, you know, uh, so it's kind of funny, when, when I was in my senior year, I wasn't applying for any jobs. I was convinced that, that lightweights had just been um, included into the Olympic Games. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was obsessed with the rowing. And so I didn't even apply and look for jobs. I was going to stay there on the Charles River training with my coach and, um, and trying to make an Olympic team or at least a national caliber team. Unfortunately, I got injured again uh, right at the right at graduation. Uh, I blew out my back, I ruptured a disc in my lower back, and that really that really put the put the the brakes on any kind of rowing career. And so, I think at that point, I had studied art history, so I had studied what they call fine arts at the college. Uh, so, not exactly that career-breaking sort of type of diploma, but. You know, that's what the beauty of going to a liberal arts school. I I wasn't terribly concerned with what I studied. I just thought I would have an interest in business or, um, you know, find one of those early jobs coming out and I'd I'd figure it out. And a very long story short, after a lot of resumes and a lot of rejections, um, I was fortunate enough to get my first job with uh, a private equity firm or a venture capital firm called TA Associates uh, in Palo Alto. And uh, okay. Yeah, I started. I started dialing for deals. I started looking yeah. for investment opportunities <laughs> for them. Yeah. yeah,
1: and so were like those the days of like literally going through newspapers and like phone books and actually cold calling these companies.
0: That's right. You know it. You know it all too well. This is pre-internet, and this is. <laughs> uh, I would show up on a Monday morning. So I worked for three partners, and uh, I'd show up on a Monday morning, and there on my desk would be a stack of thirty newspapers. And uh, the mission wasn't even to go through the paper. The mission was to go through the want ads. You'd go through the want ads. I'd, I'd go, you know, this was in, you know, Tucson, Phoenix, Denver, Seattle, uh, Chicago. And you'd have all the local papers and you're going into want ads to figure out who's hiring. <laughs> and uh, we had a database, all these companies that we keep track of. And if I saw that somebody was hiring a lot of people in San Diego, I'd call them up. And you're right. right. I'd get on the phone with the entrepreneur and I'd try to figure out As quickly as I could, I tried to explain, I'm not selling something. Uh, We have investment dollars that we love to put work and, you know, put to work in great companies. And, you know, can you tell me about your business? And that's what I got to do. I got to spend, I almost, I did for almost five years, four and a half years. I just talked to entrepreneurs all day long and heard their stories and heard all the reasons that you can screw up a business. Turns out there's a lot of ways you can do it, but also kind of got the fundamentals around what makes great businesses and, and great entrepreneurs. And I caught the bug. I really, I really, I realized that I probably would never make a great investor, but man, I really wanted to go back in the game. I wanted to be Mm. one of the people who was building a company.
1: Yeah. And now associates can just look on LinkedIn and see, you know, the employee growth on the uh, insights for each company page to see which (laughs) ones are true.
0: Oh yeah. They've got it. They've got it. Maybe they have it harder in other ways, but yeah, they're not making the calls like like we used to.
1: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I know for me, I look back on my time spent deal sourcing at the P firm I worked at as being like this really incredibly rewarding, both from a personal growth as well as a learning standpoint. Is it the same for you?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. On On, frankly, both fronts, not only the entrepreneurs I got to speak to where I often joke, but I mean it with some sincerity. I got paid to go to business school. I never did go get my MBA, but... I was doing case studies every day. I was talking to these entrepreneurs, so that was really f- fulfilling as well as like the learning curve was steep. and I also was really fortunate to just work for three fantastic partners, three guys who took me under their wing, um, you know just highly professional, highly ethical, uh, just taught me a lot about how to treat individuals, very humble, uh, just humble individuals who you know, we were in the business of going and finding great businesses and acknowledging how great they were. And then in some ways we used to joke, how can we kind of beg our way into these things so that we can enjoy the ride? Um, but it was, it was good kind of to have that training because you just learn like, you don't do all this by yourself. It's It, it comes right back to what I said, it takes a team. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, just fond memories, perfect training ground for what yeah. I went off to do.
1: Yeah, that's when the days of proprietary deals were actually like a real thing.
0: You know, you're right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I look at it today and the competitive landscape and with so much information that's available out there, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's, it's interesting. So fast forwarding a bit here. Did you launch Kana Communications soon after leaving, leaving TA?
0: Yeah, I did. So I, so I left in September of 95 with this concept that I, I want to go start something. I don't know what it's going to be. But as long as I'm working here, and, and you can appreciate this since it sounds like you had a very similar role to what I had. Mm-hmm. The challenge I had was while working at TA Associates, I just found it was going to be very hard for me to moonlight. Um, I, I had a job I, and, I, and I felt uh, you know an ethical responsibility to do that job exceptionally well. And the only problem was it was all consuming, right? I, I would yeah. work hard. <laughs> and so I didn't have any time to, to pursue my own dreams. So I left without any concept for what the business was going to be. I just knew I wanted to go start something and um, I was recently married. And so Lisa and I, we kind of agreed, okay, we've got enough savings if we're really careful and and I'll take some part-time jobs and we'll do some other things. Um, we'll give ourselves two years. And if I can get something off the ground in the next two years, great. If not, Hey, I've probably got a pretty good story for a business school application or, you know, I'll go get a real job. And so that's what I did. Um, uh, First thing I did, Chase, before I even started my business was I found part time work so that I could actually just continue to pay the rent. So I actually went from working at the venture capital firm to uh, I literally went to a local running store and started selling shoes for eight bucks an hour, um, which was great in its own right. I, you know, I laugh now. One of my best friends was my manager at that store called metrosport and it was just a great group of guys and, and and women you know men and women who were working there and we we had a lot of fun together and but the beauty of it was i could do it for four or six hours a day and then i just don't think about it i can go and work on my startup right and so that's what i did and um yeah kana as you described was sort of born out of that
1: okay yeah where i worked we were actually in the same building as ta's boston headquarters so Very familiar with those guys,
0: yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, we travel back there probably once a quarter and great firm. Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, and so maybe like provide a quick overview of what Kana did for people listening.
0: Sure, so here's the great irony because we've got the two companies, uh, Kana and Strava. So when we initially started Kana, it was supposed to be Strava, it was called Kana Sports. And we oh, were trying to launch the virtual locker room, uh, circa 1995, 1996. We had this theory that again, going back to our crew experience, Michael, who's my co-founder. So we met on the, we met on the crew team, uh, became the best of friends. He went off, he got his PhD in economics, became a professor at Stanford. And I was out here in Palo Alto uh, working at TA. And so now I'm trying to start something. And so I, I go to him and I'm, um, trying to convince him that he should be my co-founder and, uh, and so forth. We're brainstorming ideas. And one of the things that we felt we were missing was the, the camaraderie and the, and the, the, the competition and the, the, the trash talking, everything that just happened inside that boathouse, when we graduated, it disappeared. And so we had this theory that could we leverage the internet to kind of recreate that environment? Could we, could we create a virtual locker room, so to speak? So I tell this story relative to Kana because So that's the idea. It lent itself. The good news was it, um, it, it led us to the promised land of a really great business at the time. The bad news was we were way too early. Like that idea was not going to float. We couldn't figure out a monetization model. It was going to be really hard to get people to upload activities. It just, there were a lot of problems with the idea, but in the process of pursuing it, we started talking to sports companies and we learned about this problem associated with customer email. Then again, you have to go back. This is this is 1996. This is really the beginnings of the World Wide Web, and these companies were launching their businesses for the first time. Whether you were a startup like a Pets.com or a Yahoo.com, or you were a major company like a Ford Motor Company or a Chase Manhattan Bank, you all had the same problem, which was as soon as you went online, customers started sending you emails, and these companies just weren't set up to handle that. They weren't. They might have call centers, but these call centers were not set up to, to handle asynchronous communication. So mm-hmm. we, in essence, pivoted our business. We, or we evolved aggressively from let's figure out a virtual locker room to, hey, wait a second, maybe there's a way we can solve this customer email. And uh, it turned out we were just in the right place at the right time. We, we found some great developers who helped us and we ended up launching this customer email uh, business that turned into more of sort of a CRM business Okay. Uh, And and grew rapidly from there. Yeah. We we took that public about four years later.
1: Wow. Four years later. Like, so like, what was your approach to, on growth for Kana? Like four years going to, I think it might've been like over a hundred million in revenue I read and like a thousand employees. Like that's just, that's just crazy.
0: Yeah, it, it, it was. In some ways it was a little too crazy. I mean, people have heard stories about kind of that that first internet boom and and that's we were right in the thick of it you know we were we were selling the pixes and the axes the picks and the axes as they like to describe we were we were selling the infrastructure that all these dot coms needed to launch their business and it was a fantastic experience so on the positive side i mean you're right we got to experience everything from two guys and a dog the dog was cona that's actually what the the business was named after was my dog at the okay. time and, and so there was there was the two of us, that launched it. And four years later, you're right, we had 1200 employees. We had, I don't know, 40 something offices around the world. We were generating uh, actually a couple hundred million in revenue, we, had, uh, we were public on the NASDAQ. And so we sort of had experience in this just hyper accelerated way, all the various stages, raising capital, building out teams, the competitive landscape, everything that comes with developing software and customer support, sort of all the functional areas. Um, and, and then really the challenges of being public company on top of then the challenge of the nuclear winter that was 2000, 2001. And, and what happens when that boom became a bust and, um, uh, you're right for me, it was about a four or five year ride that I was in there. I, I did leave the company in the summer of 2000. We'd recruited a new CEO in and, uh, okay. I, it just was, yeah, I stuck around for a year and, and kind of helped him with the transition, but it was time for me to focus on some personal stuff, and we were starting a family and, and so forth. So I, I left in early 2000, but um, loved the startup experience, loved building teams, loved the competitive aspect to it. I realized that this was a place where I could fulfill some of that motivation that I had from sports, was, was just building out and, and competing against other, in this case, enterprise software companies. Um, and you know, there were just some things I didn't, didn't like. Uh, there was some unfinished business, um, relative to building out a company that, that Michael and I, you know, we, in, at times we wish that we'd, we'd still been involved so that we could have helped it kind of get through the hard times, but you know, you're going to learn it. We sometimes joke, you, you start a company, if you end up bringing in leadership and, and you're going to be out, it's a little bit like you give your child up for adoption and you either need to move out of the house and move on or, <laughs> or, you know, you're going to have a different scenario. So. Those are some of the lessons, but it was great. Loved it. Fond, fond memories. And one of those places where I still have great friends from my days at Kana.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like any other lessons learned from like building and running Kana that you've now taken with you uh, as you're building Strava?
0: Yeah, you know, I will say this. There's some big differences between building software companies today versus the way we were building them back then. I mean, uh, you know, a fast turnaround development cycle back then was six to nine months, um, and you were delivering the software on a disk to all of your enterprise customers, or or if it was consumer software, you were selling it in a store in a box, right? Whereas today, we'll do multiple releases in a single day uh, out on the platform. So there's all kinds of differences, but I think you know, Michael and I came to Strava with a couple of things. One, we wanted to get back to our roots, the, the problem that we actually were still very much passionate about, which was, again, just the importance of living an active lifestyle and, and being active and being fit and, and enjoying sports and, and what that meant for all other aspects of our life. So we wanted to get back to that. The other thing we wanted to do is, we were very focused on what it is to build a lasting organization kind was fantastic in terms of just the lesson it taught us around sort of growth and competition and, and, you know, product market fit. But as I mentioned a second ago, there was some unfinished business. You know, we didn't, we didn't get the business model quite right. We were generating a lot of revenue, but we were also burning a lot of cash and we were much more interested this time around in creating a company that can withstand the test of time, you know, built to last It's a book written by Jim Collins It's a great book for those who haven't read it. And it just studies those companies that have figured out how to be around, not just for a year or five years or 10 years, but for decades. So that was intriguing to Michael and I. We wanted, you know, could we do that? And the last thing we were really excited about was consumer. We had done enterprise software. Um, uh, it's interesting, uh, but we were much more inclined to pursue consumer in large part because when we thought about companies that we admire out in the marketplace today, the kinds of companies we wish we'd founded, they were largely these great consumer brands, right? The the Oakley sunglasses, the Patagonias, the the Virgins, uh, right. you know, just just these fun, iconic brands out there. And so for us, it was like, wow, if we're gonna go start a company again, could we could we pull that off? Would that would that be mm-hmm. possible? So that's that's why Strava came about. Yeah. Plus we were too young to we we were getting in trouble. I, I end up in, in <laughs> hospitals after bicycle accidents and things like that. So it. We needed to start a company just to stay out of trouble.
1: Right, right. And do you think, like for you, when you think about, like, seeing the impact you're making with your company, that it's easier for you to see that when it's a consumer-focused company rather than B2B, like enterprise?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, we took a lot of pride in the ways in which we were able to help our enterprise customers. So, you know, and in some respects, I'd actually argue in some ways I actually liked the purity of the enterprise software for one reason, which was we were building for someone other than ourselves, And so we could have a very focused approach to, okay, this is our customer. What is their problem? Let's go study it. Let's go talk to them. Let's really understand. Let's go build things for them. And, and I think that's where great things happen. I, I still come back to fundamental sort of product philosophy around go solve real problems and be authentic and, just create great product, and that solves 99% of your problems. That and great people. If You can have great people and, and sell a product. You can solve all the other stuff. And so that was true in, in both accounts. Uh, and I like the purity of that because I think the one challenge we've had with Strava, and I won't call it a challenge, but just it's an interesting aspect to it, is that like, we have 200 people at Strava who are incredibly passionate today about the product that we're building but we're also like users ourselves. We're all, you know, we we all have ideas around what the next feature, I, hardest job inside Strava. It's not my job as executive chair. It's not Michael's job as the CEO. I think it's our chief product officer's job uh, yeah. because this is a woman named Megan Laffey today, uh, but she's trying to basically navigate through all the noise and all the conflicting priorities because there are so many ideas right we have tens of millions of people sending in ideas we have 200 employees who all sort of know what the right strategy is and what the next feature should be um, and it's because we're all so passionate personally about it we all use it every day so in an ironic twist you know that's it's a blessing and a curse yeah. but it's really fun it's uh, and it's fun to see the passion um, it, it just makes every day easy
1: yeah yeah that's interesting And so, so getting into Strava now, probably most of my listeners are users of the platform, but for people who don't know what Strava is, uh, maybe just provide a quick overview.
0: Sure. Yeah. Strava. uh, So we define it as kind of the leading social platform for athletes. Uh, It's really what we've done is we've created this global sports community. It's about 70 million people worldwide. We're in 195 countries today. Uh, We add 2 million members every month Uh, and what you're doing on strava is a couple things you're you're basically posting your activity so you go out for a ride or a run however you capture that whether that's on your iphone or your android or on your apple watch or a garmin device doesn't matter we we kind of connect with everything we try to make it as easy as possible for you to post that activity and then in doing so we want to we want to do a couple things one we're going to we're going to share some insight we're going to give you some feedback we're, we're going to show you how you're doing we're going to give you some context we're going to allow you to compete with other people we're going to show you do on certain leaderboards and so forth and probably most importantly we're going to connect you with with other folks with your friends your relatives the people who who keep you motivated and you know sometimes that's getting a kudo which is the equivalent of kind of a virtual high five sometimes it's 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 again it's the it's the fun sort of talk and banter that goes back and forth when somebody does something but what we found is that people keep people active and so on Strava, it's just, um, it's a theory that if we can keep people connected in this way and supporting each other in their active lives across all these different sports, whether you're riding or running or skiing, or just going for a hike on a Sunday afternoon with your family, good things happen. Really yeah. good things. Happen. Um, people just live healthier lives that way, not just physically, but I think emotionally and they're mm-hmm. better parents, they're better coworkers. And so that's what that's what Strava's about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so, talk to me now about the the genesis of Strava and like like when when you like you and Michael really started working on it and why that that time was the right time to really commit to to Strava.
0: Yeah. So, start date was official start date is January of two thousand nine. Um, we actually sat down uh, about two and a half years earlier. Michael and I has, as I mentioned, so I, we had both left Kana in the early two thousands. He was living actually out near where you are, Chase. He, he was living out in Hanover, Hanover New Hampshire, because okay. uh, uh, he had been teaching at Dartmouth uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I was still on the West Coast, and both of us were realizing that we were a little bored. Uh, we were both kind of doing a lot of advisory work, serving on boards of directors, things of that sort, after our Kana experience. Um, and we were, we were itching to do something else. So we met in Vail, Colorado in the summer of 2006 and sat down and just started brainstorming around what might be possible. We worried less around what's the company we're gonna build. We, we spent more time just thinking about what kind of company. And that's a lot of these things I mentioned earlier. Boy, wouldn't it be fun to pursue consumer? And you know, what is it to build a, a lasting brand? And what are the problems out there in the world that we don't want our kids to have to deal with? Right? It, was, it was those kinds of conversations And we were kind of reminded of, again, the kind of sports concept that we'd had in the mid-90s. Like, that problem still exists. Like, we still find it really hard to to stay active. Life gets in the way. Um, You get busy, your job takes over, you get injured. Um, For whatever reason, it's just hard. And so we started exploring, has the world changed? You know, would it be easier to launch Strava today? And the answer was yes. You know, the answer Mm -hmm. was there was this proliferation of devices. Uh, You now had these Garmins and you had smartphones were just, just really coming into the market, but you had devices like that that could capture data. And the other thing you had was you had the advent of Facebook, which, you know, for all the challenges it faces today, you know, one of the interesting things is that it really changed the way in which consumers were willing to interact with each other. Again, you go back to the early 90s, I was not going to share what I had for breakfast or, you know, when my son's birthday was with anybody else. Um, but with the social networks, with the Twitters and the Facebooks, there was sort of this comfort with sharing of information, particularly if you got a, if there was a good value exchange. And so the combination of those things kind of unlocked an opportunity for Strava. And, uh, yeah, we launched the business in 2009. And we didn't launch it as this global empire. We actually launched with a pretty narrow focus, but, that was the, when answering your question, that was the kind of genesis on why we got started.
1: Right, right. And that narrow focus was cyclists at first, right? Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We went after the cycling market first, um, again, kind of applying a lot of our lessons that we had from the prior company, Kana. And mm-hmm. one of those lessons was basically going an inch wide and a mile deep. In the case of Kana, we went after this one thing, which was customer email response and we were laughed at we were laughed at by a lot of venture guys and others it's like guys that's that's not a that's not even a product it's barely a feature let alone a company but what they missed was it was a real problem inside companies companies could not figure out how to respond to these growing volumes of email and so by being very focused on that one problem we began to get customer traction and good product market fit and as we did that we then had conversations that allowed us to expand our service offering and grow a really valuable business. Well, fast forward to Strava, same thing. Michael and I really aren't, we're not dedicated, passion cyclists. Michael's actually, he's very good road cyclist. I tend to like my mountain bike, but that wasn't where it came from. Where it came from was, boy, look at this audience. Cyclists, they love their data. They've got the devices on the handlebars. Uh, no one's right. really serving them particularly well. Uh, there's lots of other solutions out there for runners and so forth let's go an inch wide, mile deep with this group. And if we do it right, we'll have a blueprint for how we can then launch in other sports. Uh, similar to the way that other sports, frankly, you know, iconic brands like Nike and others have done it in the past, right? I mean, Nike started in their running and then, but if you look out decades later, they've, they've got all their different categories. Our thesis was the same, could we do that? So the first three years were very much focused on the cycling community. Mm-hmm. actually known as the mammal middle-aged men in lycra that that <laughs> was our target audience and yeah, we, we went after them and uh great great target audience they uh they adapted to strava very quickly gave us the credibility we needed in the market and ultimately the confidence we needed to then begin expanding across you know lots of different sports
1: yeah cyclists i guess you know generally speaking definitely do love their data i got into cycling this year and couldn't believe how much money it, it requires if you really want to be like intense uh, and like doing the triathlons and all of that. I was shocked.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, the, the spend is incredible. And you know, and then pretty quickly you realize that it's not just one bicycle, you need a quiver. It, right, the answer yeah. is always N plus one. How many mm-hmm. bikes do you need? N plus one, whatever number you got, there's always another one. So yeah, no fascinating to see the, the demographics, the behavior patterns, um, uh, the passion, they have for the sport and frankly we got very lucky again this is another similar to kana where not only did we solve a real problem but it just turned out that that problem was much bigger than people anticipated go back to 2008 2009 nobody could have predicted the boom that cycling has seen in the last 10 years. It's been fascinating. There's just been this renaissance and it's kind of like the new golf, right? You know, People Mm -hmm. used to go out and spend six hours on a golf course. Now you go do your business meeting on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday morning ride. So um, we were really fortunate that cycling itself was sort of experiencing this growth as we were growing with it. And then as we quickly, I didn't say quickly, but as we transitioned to running, and swim and try and the other endurance activities. And now there's, I think, 34 different activities on Strava that you can capture. But as we did that, they all just kind of naturally went from one to the other.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. What are some of the main ways that Strava has grown its user base? Like, like for me, I heard about it through word of mouth, actually.
0: Yeah, then that, that's actually great to hear because that's, I think, the number 96% of our members come to us organically through their friends. Uh, wow. and despite everything we've tried and we've tried just about every different strategy to, you know, uh, push that growth. The reality is our best source are just our happy members. Uh, no question about it. Uh, in the early days we did a lot of grassroots things, you know, and we still have a great marketing team that does fantastic work around the brand and product marketing. Um, so, you know, we'll show up at events and, um, uh, try to be there to support our athletes in the field. Um, uh, we realized that, you know, having conversations like this and just getting the story out, really important so people can understand what Strava is about. Um, and then there's things in the product, frankly, that we do. If you just, if you're familiar with Strava, then you'll appreciate this thing called segments, which is basically any stretch of road or trail that somebody wants to track. And that's great. You can just track it and see how you do on that and, and how you're doing, but you can also see how others are doing. Uh, and you can see the leaderboards and you can, you can compare against your friends or, or against your age group or against your weight class, however you want to do it. But by definition, what that does is that it motivates you to bring other, your other friends in because you want to see how you're doing. Relative to them. <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's examples like that, that allow that organic sort of viral growth to happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I saw that for the, when I first downloaded the app, the segments thing, I was like, no way this actually exists. <laughs> and I was so stoked that. I could actually see how it compared to other people in the area, like riding this oh, one segment. Here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a fun feature that um, uh, it, it kind of, I don't say it came out of nowhere. It came out of our cycling uh, research that we did. We realized that cyclists love their climbs. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're on a hundred mile ride or a five mile ride. There's usually some climb somewhere in the middle of that ride. That's like the important part of the ride. Mm-hmm. And so early on, we figured out how to capture that climb automatically and show it to them. And two things, one, one was they loved it. So they wanted to be able to see other stretches of road that weren't necessary climbs. And the other was, Hey, I want to know how my friend did on that climb. And so segments were born out of, again, just having that authentic conversation with our customers and kind of understanding what they wanted from the Strava experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How, and how has the business model evolved for Strava over time? Like, has it always been a freemium model?
0: Yeah. So our primary business has always been freemium. That's been kind of the, the bread and butter um, with very little modification. Um, so you can use Strava today for free in perpetuity, uh, a bunch of its features, core features. And that allows you to track and connect with people and so forth. But if you really want to experience the full Strava, if you want to experience the complete Strava, then it's an upgrade. And you pay either $60 a month or I'm sorry, $60 a year or I think it's $8 a month. Um, and that's, that has been our primary business model now for 10 plus years. Um, we've explored other forms of monetization, um, uh, different types of, we've, we explored some advertising type models and things like that. But for us, we really like the purity of just one customer. It's our athlete. And Mm -hmm. we really like this idea of just building something of value that they find indispensable to their life and that they're willing to pay for. And that's the bar that we want to set for ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, and for what it's worth, um, I know for me, I I wouldn't like seeing ads on Strava at all. That'd be a turnoff for me. So for what what it's worth, I like the no ads.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're with you. I think um, it's a, there's a place for there's a place for brands inside Strava. So actually, in full disclosure, like there is a second source of revenue. It's not. It's, and it's an important source because uh, we have challenges in Strava. So if you're familiar yeah. with Strava, we, we run monthly challenges and we have challenges that Strava does on its own, but we also have sponsored challenges. We have challenges that many brands come in and support, whether it's a Aroka or Lululemon or you name it. Um, our thesis there is that it's better. It's, it's more fun with, with the sponsor that's involved. Uh, the sponsor often provides some kind of reward for anybody who finishes the challenge. So there's often real incentive there. And it's akin to an actual real race, right? If you show up on a, on a Saturday afternoon to a, I don't care whether it's a local turkey trot or it's you know the New York City Marathon, there tends to be sort of swag and sponsors that are involved and it's all just part of the experience. So we do have brands that show up in Strava um, but we want it to be authentic. And the idea is, does it improve the athlete experience? Uh, and I think that's a good example. So in challenges, yes, we feel like it's, it's a better experience when our partners are involved, no problem. But to your point, if, if we just had ads showing up in the feed, I, 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 yeah, I think we, we lose um, a lot of what we tried to set out to build.
1: Yeah, so Strava's mission, um, from what I read on the website is to build the most engaged community of athletes in the world. What are some of the like, key features of, of Strava that really allows for this community building to occur?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it goes back. So a couple things. First off is rather than starting with community, we realize that it's really important for someone to feel like they can just come on and, and enjoy Strava on their own. Uh, we call it single player mode. So ironically, the community will happen naturally if you have a great experience that someone is getting just by using Strava every day, high utility, we want to make sure that there's high utility there. So, and if you want to treat it as your personal training log and that's it, you don't want anybody to see your activities. You just want to be able to track in a really effective way. How many miles you, you run or ride or swim every week. And you want to understand your trends and what your fitness levels are. No problem. Uh, And so that's where that authentic experience comes from. Now, what happens is, it gets so much better when you start following a couple friends. It starts as soon as you have a couple friends who can see what you're doing and can share in your successes, can pat you on the back when you maybe had a hard workout or didn't go well. That seems to be a key motivation. It's what we learned when we were on the crew team years ago that we wanted to share with everybody else. So we make it easy for you to just follow people that, that you're interested in you don't need to go build out a massive network. This isn't about having hundreds of people following you. This is having your close friends and the people that, you know, your mm-hmm. old teammates or, uh, or your family, you know, in my case, probably my number one kudoer is my 85 year old dad, right? I'll update. <laughs> He's like the first guy to kudo me. And that's, it's great. That's how he stays. It's the only social network he has is, is Strava. Um, so it's kind of built into that experience of, Hey, let's allow you to create your team. Uh, the group around you that you need. And uh, once we do that, that's where really fun things happen. Yeah, you can compete, you can compare, you can see what your trends are. Uh, there's a lot of discovery inside Strava. You can discover new routes. Um, uh, we just launched a new feature this year, Routes on Mobile, where you just you click in, you tell us what activity you want to do, ride, run, uh, and give us a sense of distance. And then wherever you're located, we'll start to show you routes that are based on All the data we have. So based on popularity and frequency and so forth, we can give you a pretty good sense of if you want a five mile run, a three mile run, a 20 mile run, it's it's all right there. So those are just examples of ways we can experience Strava, but it all comes back together. It's all kind of community enabled. That makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It does. Definitely does. So what's your ultimate vision for Strava?
0: Uh, well. Um we're really excited about the following thing. So we've got we've we've got this global community. Uh, our primary mission, and whether it's for the next year or the next five years, is how do we continue to support these folks on their mission to leave just active, healthy lives. Mm-hmm. So where we get really excited is that you know, the old adage, I think it was Nike who once said, you know, if you got a body, you're an athlete. We believe the same thing. That's who we serve, we serve athletes, and if you're sweating, you're an athlete and you belong on Strava. So our mission is, how can we continue to make this a very inclusive, inviting place for, for anyone who, who lives an active life to find their home on Strava? And that's really what it's about. It's about your, the home of your athletic life, where you can pull all those activities into one place and those friends that have kind of that shared passion and allow it to keep you motivated, to inspire you. It's really about fun too. You know, I, it, you know sometimes we lose sight of the fact that if we can just bring a little bit of joy to somebody's life, we love when we hear from members where they say, you know, the best part of my day was when I opened up my feed and I, I relived my run or I saw that, you know, one of my friends got out at 5 a.m. and, and did a ride, in, you know, 32 degree weather. And it just gives them a little bit of joy. That's, that's a victory. And our thesis is if we do that, Chase, there's a bunch of really great things that happen. Uh, there's a great business that we can build. Uh, we can support every individual can feel like they're getting support in a really positive way and as a community we can start to affect change Um, I don't know if you read at all about Strava Metro but it's just one example of a service that now we have that is all about our community giving back because it's about using the data in these large cities to help these cities Rethink their infrastructure and to build better pathways and better cycling uh, paths and and pedestrian causeways and so forth Using the information that Strava has all the activity data to really give them the insight in terms of what's changing in their city Mm -hmm. Um, That wouldn't be possible Without sort of this community that's come together that has all this information. Then we just make it easily accessible Right Long answer to your question, but, but really excited about what the community can actually do right. to society at large.
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not, it's not so much about having like this static vision, I guess, statement for you as it is about just continuing to build value for your customers and build, continue building that community.
0: Yeah, I know. Our, our vision is always like we want to motivate people to achieve their personal best. I mean, if, if we're doing whatever that best is, right. And, and that personal best might be attaining Olympic gold. It might be simply figuring out how to walk their first 5k and, and everything in between. And it's because if we do that, we become sort of the record of the world's activities here. But it's not for our own sake. It's that if we get all these activities in place, we can affect other positive change. Uh, and like I just described in lots of different ways. So, right. yeah, that's the the vision we'd love nothing more than i guess maybe the last thing i'd say is that if we do this right you know we'd love to think that strava's around 50 years from now long after i've decided to move on and retire and you know you know sit on the sit on the front porch somewhere um we'd love to think that strava has become just an integrated part of somebody's lifestyle in a way that is a positive influence
1: yeah yeah that's awesome so getting to these last handful of questions here let's say we meet again, theoretically on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personal or professional.
0: Well, the first thing that I'm going to, I'm going to say is, uh, Hey, is your dad giving kudos on Strava now? That's our mission is going to be, we're going to get everybody uh, on Strava. So that's, that's where I'm going to start. You already heard that my dad's doing it. So we're going to make sure that Chase's dad's doing it and and everybody else's that's, you know, I'd love nothing more than five or 10 years from now. Um, you know, the, the passion for Strava it's, is just as high for me, but it, it is for, for other people and that they've, they've experienced what I've been fortunate enough in, to experience, which is just the, again, that, that daily joy that you can have in this. So that's where I'd, I'd start. And then maybe okay. the second piece would be the, um, uh, we've unlocked sort of the power of what happens when you bring a community with this shared interest together in one place, what does that unlock? You know, we're talking about these things like Metro, but I think we're only scratching the surface. I think that, uh, again, you get, we get hundreds of millions of people active on a platform like this, all dedicated towards living a healthy life. Ah, you know, the world's our oyster. We can we can solve a lot of the world's problems, whether it's around climate change or social justice. It's it's just fun to think about the ways we can unlock some things. So, that's. Uh, I'd love to think ten, from years from now, we're. We aren't the solution, but we're part of it. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. So especially nowadays with the pandemic, there's a pretty large discussion around how to get kids more active, like playing outside, exploring their interests and so on, like without getting sucked into their devices. As an athlete and founder of a tech company, like how have you approached this with your kids?
0: Yeah, well, so as uh, i don't know if i mentioned it or not but i have twin boys now um they're getting up there they're, they're no longer boys they, they're they're in their first year of college so um and you know i've been fortunate Straw has been part of their life now for 10 plus years and so i can attest to the fact that whether they liked it or not they were going to live an active life they were going to be outdoors <laughs> uh they, they know dad likes to keep moving and so i've got two guys now who can outrun me uh, they can outride me um they probably Probably oh, can out ski me as well. Those are kind of our, our three things that we love to do together, uh, and I would encourage that of everybody. You know, one of the fun stats that we keep track of in Strava is the ratio of time in app compared to time being active. And right now, for every minute that you're in the app, on average, our athletes spend 50 minutes being active, and we're actually seeing that ratio increase. So we're actually seeing them spending more time. And so it's to your point. It's it sounds antithetical, but We're trying to get people off of their devices. Uh, You know, stop looking at your screen. Go out and have some fun. Oh, that's interesting. What happens Mm -hmm. now? We believe that that's good for Strava because the more Mm -hmm. that you're active, you're going to upload it, and we're going to figure out ways to inspire you and we're going to get you to go out and be more active. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's that to me. Maybe I'm not quite circling back to the kids piece of this, but we want to start with just. You know, making sure that that we as parents understand that, and that and that they're taking the time, and we can tell you that the demographics are changing rapidly inside Strava. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our fastest growing group is is those who are 25 and younger uh, inside Strava today. So we can see that that's growing, and if we can build those kinds of behaviors and and sort of um, uh, uh, just rituals into someone's life, where they they just realize that being active on a on a regular basis is is of value to them early and they can build that in their their habits so forth going on. What a that's a great habit to develop early. because uh, if you've got that now, that'll that'll last a lifetime.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. because um, I'm I'm sure you've you've heard about like other social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and how like they just want you to spend more time on their platforms. Whereas it sounds like with Strava that the more time you're spending on the platform likely means that you're uploading more activities or you're, you're seeing your friends upload their activities that inspires you to want to go outside and then exercise. This is really interesting.
0: It's exactly right. It, it's uh, and again, it goes a little bit to our business model, right? If we were selling ads, well, we have to make sure that those eyeballs are looking at those ads. We're not doing that. You, you, we want to, we want you to pay us as a member of Strava. We want you to pay us because you're getting joy from the utility of using the app. Uh, you're getting joy from, and, and we can show up in lots of different ways. You're going to, you can use Strava when you're, when you're tracking, but you don't have to have it in front of you. You can put your phone in your pocket and go for a ride and hopefully you're getting value there. And then you can hit stop and, and, and relive it for a moment. That's great. Uh, so yeah, we, we tend to track a lot of KPIs inside Strava, but time and app is not one that we worry about. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What does your daily routine look like? (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh i'm not sure any day is the same twice and, and and i and i enjoy that i'm pretty fortunate that way um you know my role as executive chair here i get to to partner with michael every day and and so forth but uh at the same time i don't have the the daily duties. so typical routine for better or worse i'm up on the early side you know between five and six um i'm addicted to an ipad so i hop on my ipad pretty early and and i check headlines i got a couple of news sources that I, that I love to check early and I'll check mail I'll check slack I'll sort of see sort of what's come in uh, overnight and then um, and then I have my, my one thing that I promise myself is do not shower until the workout has happened so uh, yeah. sometimes that happens at 7 a.m or you know 6:30 and I get it done and, and I shower and then I'm on to the rest of my day uh, and there are other days. Truth be told, Chase, I haven't showered yet. I haven't gotten my work in, so you know that's just the way it happens. Sometimes there's other things that are out there, but I haven't showered because I'll get I'll get something in, even if it's just a quick walk around the block. So yeah, um, yeah, that's that's at least how I start my day, and then I'm just trying to hang out with my kids and whatever's going
1: on. Yeah, that's fine with COVID. Everybody's working from home, so
0: (laughs) yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force Podcast. What do you think has been your driving force throughout your life?
0: Hmm. I think it's competition. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I enjoy that feeling that comes from, it's not about, but it's not about winning. It's not about beating anymore. It probably was when I was younger. Now it's just this pursuit of excellence. So when I describe competition, it's just, it's just this, this sort of relentless pursuit. I'll give you a funny example. Um, my, both of my boys know that um, I, I was never kind to them in their youth in terms of letting them win anything. If they won something, they earned it. And whether that was a game of horse on the basketball court or that was ping pong, or that was going for a run, like I, I would push. Uh, and as they've gotten older, man, they've caught up. Like now I'm <laughs> the one chasing them. But the more recent one, so Charlie, uh, who's off at school right now, uh, loves chess. And so we'll play online chess against each other. And he crushes me. He just he just annihilates me. And it's absolutely got me obsessed. Like now I am just like, it's not that I have to go beat him, but I'm realizing I do not understand this game at all. And I need to go study this. I, I've got to go figure this out. And so I just love that. Like I, I start to dig in and try to figure out, okay, what are the steps I need to learn? And, you know, let's see if I can, my, my litmus test will be, can I start to be competitive with him? Um, he'll still beat me. He's still really good at it, but. That's my driving force. I I love that pursuit of excellence.
1: That's awesome. That's a great answer. And so lastly here, before I wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice would you like to leave the aspiring entrepreneur listening?
0: Well, I'll give you boy, so many things. I'll give you my big three. Uh, You know, when I, we go back to the days of TA associates, um, I was really fortunate then because I got two great lessons. I got a lesson from the entrepreneurs that I kept talking to over and over, which was, hey, look, you're going to be doing this 365 days a year. You're not going to make any money anytime soon. So just make sure that what you're doing, you enjoy. Just just pursue that passion. And we hear it all the time. It's very trite, but there's a lot of truth to it. And you can find passion in really interesting things. Like we were doing customer email management, not exactly the most sexy thing in the world, but it was really fun to build those teams. So find the passion. The advice I got from the Venture guys that I was working for, the partners, fix problems. Because when, you, when you're a startup, if you're fixing a real problem, I don't care how small you are, people will listen. Uh, and so passion, the problem. And then my third one is just, just keep hiring better than yourself. Uh, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, and they think that they have to go and learn like, all the skills to be great marketing people and sales people. Like they, they need all these functional. It's just not true you're not going to be good at any of those. I'm not, I'm not good at at any of those functions. You do not want me running marketing at Strava. You don't want anyone in sales. You're only running engineering product. But what I believe I can be good at is just finding amazing people and inspiring them to go and and do incredible work. And uh, that's where we're really lucky today at Strava. And that's what I would encourage any entrepreneur. Just, just go find people who are better than you. Um, and see if you can't get excited together to go you know, go after something.
1: Awesome. That's a great place to end. Mark, thanks for coming to the show. This is great.
0: Anytime, Chase. Fun. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Where can people go if they want to you know, download Strava or learn more?
0: You can find Strava in any of the app stores uh, uh, with uh, Google Play or obviously uh, Apple's app store or just, just hit www.strava.com.
1: Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, ChaseRosa.com and follow me on Instagram at ChaseRosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening and see you next time.